How are you doing? I'm I'm okay. How are you doing? I was I was talking to Tara Hurst about that very question. It's somewhat a lazy question, but in this moment, it also actually feels like a real question, right? Because somebody could say, you know, it turns out I got it, or it turns out my parents got it, or it turns out that uh, we're we're at risk, or it turns out that I lost my job, or it turns out that my business is no longer around. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I definitely. I do know the. I now know somebody a very close personal friend who has a positive diagnosis here in Oregon. And that's one of the things that just kind of, you know, not that it, it was never theoretical before, but now it's, it really hits home. Where I'm like, well, I know somebody's I'm checking in with her every day and texting and finding out she's feeling and, and she's not been hospitalized. So that's good. And she's young and, and otherwise healthy. So she's expected to weather this, but she certainly says it's absolutely no fun. And like the worst, you know, cold she's basically ever had. And, and it's just, a, yeah, it is terrifying. It, you know, there are things that are happening each day that are demonstrating the impact that I fail to think of in advance. Like just today, somebody else brought up and it hadn't occurred to me, oh, geez, what about street roots vendors, right? Folks who uh, make, if not their living, at least some income off of selling papers, handing an item to someone that that person then takes with their hands and facilitated right. by people walking around on the streets, unlocked down. Any, uh, what have you seen out there? Anything you've seen out there that probably hasn't occurred to folks of impacts this is having? Well, I think one of the impacts that I, so I have a brother who just, just last week got out of inpatient rehab out in Eastern Oregon and, you know, very optimistic about his ability to stay in recovery. And he's been very open about that. And now all of a sudden he's trying to, you know, navigate recovery and isolation. And that's just a really, really hard thing to ask people to do. A lot of folks who are in addiction recovery one of the key elements is to, to be that accountability and not just on the phone and saying, yes, I'm being good, but like people seeing you and looking in your eyes and hearing you and smelling you and knowing that you're staying clean. And I think that's an incredibly hard thing for people to be doing right now is to be trying to do addiction recovery in isolation. We're talking to Shamia Fagan. She's a candidate for secretary of state, current state senator, previous member of the state house. Right now, candidates aren't in a position to do as many things in person. They can't go to a town hall meeting. They can't knock door to door. They can't do sit down interviews inside the same studio or inside the same boardroom. We are trying to redouble our efforts to give candidates a platform to communicate and give voters the information that they need to make sure we have the discussion in our democracy that our democracy needs and maybe even deserves. Right now, we are with Shamia Fagan. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Jefferson, having me metaphorically, because, of course, you're somewhere and I'm somewhere much farther than six feet away from you. I'm in my house and my dog may bark in the background and we will just uh, ignore him. Yeah, We're not in the same room and I'm even wearing rubber gloves or latex gloves. Who are you and why are you running? Well, I'm Shamia. I'm a state senator in Oregon. I've been in public service in Oregon since about 2011. I was first served on the David Douglas School Board in the state house and now in the state Senate. And Jefferson, as you know, the whole time I've been in public service, I've been really honest with Oregonians about my family struggles and where I come from. I grew up in eastern Oregon, Dufer and the Dow. My brothers still live in eastern Oregon in Pendleton and Stanfield. And my mom battled meth and heroin addiction for most of my life. My dad was a single parent. And, you know, my mom was homeless in Portland for many years. And when she finally passed away in October of 2014, she'd been clean for almost six years and was living in a little house that she owned in Umatilla. And the minister who performed her service, you know, said a line that, that I've really has stuck with me all these years where she said, you know, Trish reached the place of an ordinary life, a job and a house and a dog. But 
it didn't just happen to her. She fought for it with everything she had in her. And that is something that has informed my public service is the idea of folks out there not fighting for riches and fame and glory, but fighting just for ordinary. And I think what makes us able to fight and what motivates us to keep fighting is the knowledge that progress is within reach. And I think it's democracy at its core that keeps progress within reach for everyday people to believe that their community can be better, their lives can be better, their world can be better, and that progress is always within reach. And with democracy, we don't always get the candidates we want. We don't always get the policies that we want, but we always get to believe that the next time, the next election, that the progress is within reach. And so I think as the Secretary of State, there are a lot of roles that the Secretary of State does, and we are finding creative ways to explain those to people as we are social distancing in this campaign. But at its core, the most important function of the Secretary of State and what the Oregon Secretary of State shares with Secretary of States all across the country is safeguarding free and fair elections. Other states have a Secretary of State that that does only elections while other people do state lands and auditing Whereas in Oregon, the Secretary of State does all of those things. But still, the one thing that we share in common across this country is the Secretary of State makes sure that we do free and fair elections. And I think now more than ever, we're seeing the need for that as, as other states start delaying their primaries. And we're really proud to have vote by mail here in Oregon. I want to start by talking about the dynamic of you entering the race. Now, I'm going to tell you the story that I think happened. It is based on no conversation with you or really no facts at all, just my own vague awareness of how things might work and rampant speculation. So here is this episode <laughs> in rampant speculation. All right. Jennifer Williamson is a friend of yours, friend of mine, too, to be clear and to disclose. Good friend of yours. She runs for secretary of state. You decide again, this is me telling the story and then you're going to tell me what I got wrong or what I missed. You decide not to run for Secretary of State because you're not going to run against your friend Jennifer Williamson. As that is happening, there is an important vote on some relatively modest purse changes. A bunch of Democrats line up with, I don't even know how many Republicans, they didn't like any of that stuff that anybody in the Democratic Party was doing. But public labor certainly didn't like those votes. And Jennifer Williamson stands with leadership as part of what she viewed as a legislative compromise to do something somewhat modest on purse changes. You don't vote with legislative leadership. You stand with public employee unions and, and retirees and say, we're not messing with their retirements. You you cast that vote. Jennifer Williamson get, starts getting hit in the press starts hearing from public labor that they're not going to support her now. It was already maybe a little tenuous because of that vote, but she was viewed as the front runner, so they were probably going to still stick with her. She then drops out of the race. You then look around and say, probably talk to Jennifer. In my story, you do talk to her and say, hey, you're not in. You think I ought to get in? And you have that same conversation with a bunch of people and say, yeah, you know, it's getting a little bit late. You probably would have wanted to run, run already. But looking at this field, you can still win. And you have a good path to support for public labor, because not only is Jennifer Williamson not in the race, but you voted with them on PERS rather than against them. And so you come thinking you can get ahead of steam. Of course, now we're in the middle of COVID-19, which I also want to talk to you about. What did I get wrong or what did I miss? I, well, you got the votes right, but I was not thinking of running for Secretary of State back when I stood with public workers to not cut their retirement again, because uh, as you know, this is I've been in the legislature since 2013, and it's not about each isolated vote, it's about the fact that their retirement continues to be on the chopping block and kind of seems to be cut and nicked away at every session. And so I did stand with public workers, and not only did I vote against it, uh, which a few other Democrats and some Republicans did, but I was the only member of the legislature of 90, 30 in the Senate, 60 in the House, to actually go into the committee, look at the Speaker of the House and the Senate President, both of whom are Democrats and are my own leadership, and publicly testify against their bill. 
uh, because, I, again, I, I did not believe that it was the right thing to do. And so and in, in the bigger context of that is that the walkout that happened last, the first walkout, you know, now we have to say the first walkout because there have been five Jefferson with the Senate Republicans and now the House Republicans decided to I keep thinking it's only four. They don't like the results. Yeah. Well, they did five. If you count the fact that the House Republicans did it twice in February. Oh, uh, the House. Yes, yes. Because they did it once for a night session because they refused to show up. And then they later walked out entirely. But counting total walkouts, there have been five. But back under the first one where they, of course, walked out of the Student Success Act, not over cap and trade, not over you know, letting the voters vote in a referral, but they did it over the Student Success Act, which, of course, was to tax corporations, large corporations in Oregon to fund schools in every corner of the state. They came back under three conditions. One was to end efforts to pass a gun safety bill. The second was to end efforts to tighten up our immunization laws to require all school children to have immunization unless they had a medical reason otherwise. And the third was that we would cut PERS. And so not only did I believe that, that we should stand with public workers, uh, because it wasn't the right thing to do. But I also did not believe that we should continue to capitulate to the far right that doesn't want to accept the outcome of the 2018 election and shut down the government unless we do what they want. So I was not thinking in any way about running for secretary of state at the time of the purge. But I don't know that Jennifer was either. I think that she was. Sure. Nor was I thinking that the plotting was beginning then. I just think that becomes part of the story later. But anyway, what what else did I sure, miss sure. out or what or yeah, ever get I mean, wrong? I did have a conversation with Jennifer is one of my close friends. She threw my son's baby shower eight years ago uh, that your wife uh, was at also. So she has been a very good friend of mine for a very long time. And I was supporting her in the race. And when she did decide to drop out before she announced that, she did give me a phone call and ask if, um, you know, what my thoughts were about running, because we, of course, I had been working pretty closely in her campaign, had been following the issues with her, had been helping her, you know, think through responses to different answers. So she knew I had been deep in this office as something that I really cared about. I've been working on voting reforms since I showed up to the legislature in 2013. I was at a small roundtable of bus project folks, your former, uh, the, the organization that you founded for voting rights, uh, then Secretary of State Kate Brown and other members of a few, only a handful of other members of the legislature as we charted a path to passing automatic voter registration, which we then passed two years later. Um, the very first bill I sponsored in 2013 was to create the Office of Small Business Advocates. And by the Secretary way, I'll State set aside, office. I'll set aside imparti- yeah. impartiality for a moment. Thank you for that. I think the passage of, and shout out also to Caitlin Baggett and a bunch of other people, the yeah. passage of automatic voter, voter registration, one of the more exciting things that's happened in Oregon, one of the things that yeah. deserves its place alongside those other big Oregon firsts that politicians and academics like to trot out. Forgive my interruption. Right. Keep cracking. No, that's fine. So, yeah. So, I mean, the bottom line is I've been working on these issues since I showed up in 2013, And so obviously when Jennifer decided to run, I was not only supporting her as a friend, but I was excited to see somebody that I've been working with on those issues running for secretary of state. So, yeah, when she decided to withdraw, I looked around and I had already considered early, early on before Jennifer was considering running. I had actually spoken with Jamie McLeod Skinner about the possibility of supporting her. Um, But by the time, you know, Jennifer got in and then got out in February, I didn't, you know, I believe that there was not quite the campaigns being run yet. I thought that, you know, essentially the candidates who are in the race were saying essentially the same thing, just saying it kind of from a different place. And I think there's a, a, there's an opportunity in this race for a lot more bold solutions. And so what I believe I bring to the race, Jefferson, is, you know, both governing experience that Mark Haas has, um, but a progressive voting record that has stood against even Democratic leadership at times. You named one of them with the PERS votes, but I'll remind folks that in fact, I was recently at a city club debate, and one of the questions was, can you name one time that you have, um, you know, kind of bucked the Democratic Party? And I said, no, I can't name one time, but I can name three. 
And one of at least three. And one, of course, was when I um, ran against a 45 year incumbent, Rod Monroe, to join the Oregon State Senate. Uh, he was a member of Senate leadership and I primaried an incumbent Democrat and beat him in a three way primary with over 60 percent of the vote. The second was um, was my very first vote as a state senator. I became the first Democrat in history to vote against Peter Courtney as Senate president because I didn't believe he was the leader that Oregon needed uh, in our current environment. And so, you know, this is something that I had already shown my willingness to kind of buck the party when I believed that, you know, I was doing the right thing. And then um, and so there's you know, there was nobody with there is nobody else in this race with both a proven you know, governing record in Oregon and legislative experience to pass some big ideas, but also, you know, a record that shows that I will stand for for what's right, even when it's not what the Democratic Party or the party leadership is doing. And so there was room in this race for someone with bold ideas and progressive governing experience. And I'm, I'm still the only candidate in the race that, that brings that to the table. Let's talk about the issue with Peter Courtney. It was a big deal for you to, in fact, I was talking to somebody just the other day. I was like, oh, I love Shmia Fagan. She was willing to stand at Peter Courtney. And the context of that is there have been a bunch of bills. And it's not, I don't think, just because of Peter Courtney. It's because of the composi- composition of the state Senate, including several of the Democrats in the state Senate, where bills, some would call them progressive bills to be sure, might be a gun bill, might be a banking bill, something else gets passed in the House after significant debate and consternation and compromise, then gets over to the Senate to languish. And you took the step of speaking out against that, of speaking out against uh, Peter Courtney's uh, personal leadership as well. What was the dynamic there? What were your thoughts around it? What blowback did you get? What did you learn from it? Well, I I got a lot of blowback. I mean, it was a very lonely way to start as a state senator, I had just joined the caucus, having defeated an incumbent who was all of their friend, Rod Monroe, who you and I both know personally and who I like a lot and done a lot of good things for Oregon. But we had some serious policy disagreements for particularly regarding our housing crisis. And so I ran against him. And obviously, you know, that is an awkward thing to join the caucus. He and Peter Courtney have been friends for a long time and served together for decades. Um, but you know, you, you bring up a point, Jefferson, that actually is one of the bolder policy solutions that I've put forward in this race. And I'm the only one proposing this is that you're mentioning that, yes, a lot of bills will pass the House, have good, robust public conversation in the House, get over to the Senate. And Jefferson, not only did they not pass, which, you know, democracy is messy sometimes and we don't always get they didn't the get a vote that we want, but they don't even get a vote. And here's why. Because of a loophole in our public records law, and for, for your listeners who don't always know all the roles of the Secretary of State in Oregon, I'll just pause for a second and say that she is the administrator of public records. And so when you when we make a public records request, you typically make that to the Secretary of State's office. And so one policy proposal that I have made in this race, in addition to the public records um, advisory committee recommendations that, of course, passed unanimously because that was not controversial in the Senate, but one solution that I have proposed is that we, so there is this public records loophole, Jefferson, that allows caucus conversations to be confidential, that the notes, the, the records generated there. Now, on the one hand, folks can understand that when you're negotiating with someone, you're not going to have them negotiating very honestly if they're trying to get to yes or bringing up sincere policy disagreements or concerns about legislation. If they think every time you write down their notes, those are going to be public records. So I do understand kind of the basic kind of the principle of that exemption. But the state Senate has taken it to the far extreme where we literally hold a vote. There is a secret vote that takes place inside the Senate Democratic Caucus. 
literally they're called vote slips. It is a piece of paper. It gets passed around, Jefferson. You put your name. It has a bill number on it. It has a yes or a no and a comment. And you vote, a secret vote, on public policy from public officials inside a public process. There's a secret vote. And if that bill does And you're talking about the whip count or something other than the whip count? This is a this is taking a whip count to a far extreme. It's an actual yep. private vote taking place, a ballot that takes place, and there's ballot slips that get passed around, and we vote, and we fold those, and we pass those in, and only one person in the state Senate sees those. And if you don't get 16 votes in that room, that bill never sees the light of day on the Senate floor. And yet if you're an advocate for that bill, campaign finance reform, public safety, gun safety, whatever it is, you don't ever get to know who voted no. So we have people going out there publicly running on issues, committing to be a yes vote on certain public policy that matters to Oregonians, and then going to that Senate caucus and secretly voting no, and yet nobody ever gets to know about it. So when I joined the state Senate, I was so appalled by this process. And again, other caucuses have whip counts, but it's different than an actual secret ballot that takes place. And so I started writing in the comments immediately, please feel free to share with anyone who asks. Because I thought it was appalling that as a public figure, I get to take a secret vote on paper that no one else knows about. And normally, I want to get back to the public records thing. This is actually very interesting that normally if you wrote an email to a constituent, somebody could issue a FOIA request and get that email. But you're saying there's a loophole in the public records law that meant this little secret vote, this whip count on steroids was not disclosable, was not discoverable, was not FOIA-able. Correct. And what the Republicans also do on the flip side is they create a bad bill list. So industry and lobbyists will often work with them to create a bad bill list. And they're all supposed to vote no. A good example of this, Jefferson, is I, I carried a bill to kind of help um, assault survivors get you know, their full compensation for a civil jury as opposed to these arbitrary $500,000 caps. I, I pushed Senator Courtney to let me put the bill on the floor, even though we didn't have 16 votes. I said the public this issue's been for the public so many times, they deserve to know where people are. So he let me carry the bill on the floor, knowing that I only had 14 votes in my own caucus. And I knew I needed two Republicans, and a, a, a Republican was actually a co-sponsor of this bill, and I thought, great, I've got at least one. I write my entire... And that gives you 15, which all you need is one person to change their mind, yeah. or one Republican to be there who you weren't aware of. 16. Yep. Right. So I, I give this speech, I gear it towards my, you know, I kind of use my conservative dad and, and the jury as the smallest, purest form of small government, et cetera, <laughs> incorruptible. And I give this great speech and I get 14 votes, not even the 15, not even the Republican co-sponsor. And two Republicans come after me afterwards and they say, that's one of the best speeches I've ever heard. You totally had me. But it was on the bad bill list, meaning they have to vote no. Yep. But the public doesn't ever get to see this list because it is under this public records exemption loophole, which we have to close because we can't have people doing public, you know, public officials taking public positions on public issues and having these secret documents passing around to make it where not only do they vote no, the public never gets to see how they vote. So they get to go back time and time again and say they're a yes on this policy, and yet they don't actually they don't ever have to actually have their vote counted in a public process. No, it's so a great point. I'm glad you're old solution that we're proposing. No, I, I'm glad to talk about it. One of the things we're doing, by the way, you're listening to Shamia Fagan. I'm Jefferson Smith. Shamia Fagan is a state senator and candidate for secretary of state. Secretary of State is not who negotiates treaties or works with the Secretary of Defense in our state. We will talk about all of the things that the Secretary of State does right after this. You're listening to X-Ray. Radio is yours. We're talking to Shamia Fagan, candidate for Secretary of State, current state senator. Let's talk about the duties of the Secretary of State's office. Again, it's not something that is 
particularly related to international affairs. In fact, I remember Brian Clem putting forward a bill some years back. I don't know if it ever reemerged or got passed to actually make the secretary of state have some role in uh, in international trips, because very often the secretary of state would seem like a thing that the Chinese government or some other government would think was supposed to matter in that sort of deal. But go through the key duties of the secretary of state's office as it stands in Oregon. So the number one is the they're the chief elections officer. So the secretary of state is in charge of administering the elections, uh, working with all 36 county clerks in Oregon to make sure that we have free and fair elections, administering the the campaign finance rules through ORSTAR, the which is the transparent public financing or excuse me, the public disclosure requirements for people who run for public office and for organizations that put things on the ballot. Um, you also accept candidate filings for office, and so they essentially administer who, you know, who has met the requirements to run for office. So chief elections officer is the number one priority. As I mentioned early, Jefferson, that's the thing that you have in common with all the other secretaries of state across the country, as opposed to, of course, except for the federal secretary of state, which should be called something different because it's confusing. But all 50 states have a secretary of state who does administering the elections. Now, Oregon secretary of state also does the auditing function. So under the Constitution in Oregon, the secretary of state is the auditor of public accounts. In other states, for example, Washington, the, they have a separate auditor who does that. But in Oregon, that falls under the secretary of state. The secretary of state is also the person who administers public records in Oregon. We already talked a little bit about that. The Secretary of State in Oregon is also the lieutenant governor, which, again, in other states, California, for example, they have in many states, they have a governor and then a lieutenant governor, which is essentially the vice governor, for lack of a better term, that if anything was to happen and the governor was not able to serve, the Secretary of State in Oregon would automatically become governor. That's what happened in 2015 when John Kitzhopper resigned. Kate Brown, then Secretary of State, automatically became governor. The Secretary of State is also sits on the state lands board. Uh, Oregon was deeded about three and a half million acres of public lands in uh, at statehood. And so the secretary of state, the treasurer and the governor sit on the state lands board to essentially administer the common school fund. Those lands are supposed to be used for the benefit of public uh, school. Elliott Forest is the most popular, uh, the most well-known of those. And then there are other little offices. Uh, there's the corporate division. So anyone who wants to do business in Oregon has to register with the secretary of state, even if they're not a, an Oregon business, they're, if they're, you know, if they're a, a foreign corporation, even foreign, meaning Colorado or Mississippi, if they want to do business in Oregon, they have to register with the Secretary of State. We also have the Office of Small Business Assistance that I chief co-sponsored the bill to create that office my first term in the legislature to have a small business advocate in the Secretary of State's office. Um, And then finally, the Secretary of State, we also have the Office of Civic Education which folks know that thinking of maybe elementary school curriculum or the kid governor program. I have some ideas for how we need to make that office much more robust in these times where I think everybody Jefferson needs a massive re-education on how to spot misinformation, how to look for credible media sources. Um, because the reality is I'm more likely to get fake news shared with me from a text or a Facebook from my aunt than I am from my niece. Um, and so I think that we need to make that Office of Civic Education much more robust. But those are essentially the big functions of the Secretary of State. So you just made an argument that the Office of Civic Education shouldn't just be around uh, middle school and high school. Oh, absolutely. That's one of our policy proposals is that now more than ever we need there's curriculums across the country that they're, that have been really successful in schools about spotting fake news, checking the credibility of your news sources. I think those should be taken statewide, nationwide, really, but statewide 
Because as I said, you know, it's not uncommon. My aunt, who's in her 70s, we're very, very close. It's not uncommon for her to text me something or share something on Facebook. She'll be very alarmed. And I'll, I'll you know, she'll say, oh, my gosh, Shamia, look what I read. And I'll, and I'll, my, you know, my, uh, I won't swear on your, on your radio, but my uh, bowl beep-o-meter will go off and be like, I don't think that's real news, Aunt Marty. Like, it's from breaking.abc.news.com or some kind of website that looks like a real website, but it isn't. And so I think that we need a massive re-education program to remind people on the left and on the right how to, you know, look for credibility in their news sources, how to question, you know, the more kind of fringe news sources to make sure that we're actually getting credible information. I think that's, you know, becoming in stark reality here in this COVID-19 pandemic. You have people that need, we need to get real information. We need to be able to go to real credible news sources that don't always get it right, but they are always trying to get it right. And when they get it wrong, they'll often then issue something to say, oh, we did we said this in our earlier publication. We now know this is, you know, this was an error. We apologize for the error as opposed to just news sources that are, you know, spouting off um, false information. I want to get to some of the differences in this race or what you at least perceive to be potential differences in this race. And let me give you give it some sort of odd context. We had the chance to broadcast the Multnomah County District Attorney debate with the City Club, right? We do all the City Club stuff. And there was a really clear difference in that race, or there is a really clear difference in that race. Uh, Ethan Knight was making the case that uh, that he wanted to continue a lot of Multnomah County DA practices, that he was running roughly on his experience and sort of being kind of the Joe Biden in that primary. I've been there. I've done stuff. I'm endorsed by the powers that be within the district attorney's world. Mike Schmidt was making the case, I think we need a progressive fundamental change in the district attorney's office. I think that we need not to prosecute the death penalty. We should not recommend and urge request death penalties uh, upon felons, upon uh, the people convicted of crimes. And I and I think that we should uh, significantly change our uh, our bail system and a number of other things. You want to change Measure 11. There's a stark difference in Measure 11. And I left that saying, OK, people could disagree, but at least they know what they're disagreeing about. Right. And those t- certain other questions they want to get into. Can Mike Schmidt do the job? How bad or good with Ethan Knight? And there's other questions, but at least it became clear after that debate who was whom. How would you characterize who is whom in this race? Jay McLeod Skinner, candidate for Congress in Eastern Oregon, has a service background for years. Mark Hass, who's been in the state Senate for has a long service record in elected office, the longest of anyone else in the race. How do you characterize the differences in this secretary of state's election? Well, I'm, you know, you mentioned the DA's race, and obviously that's a nonpartisan race where obviously somebody's taking a, a, a you know, more Democratic position and someone's taking a more conservative position. We're, of course, in a, in a Democratic primary. So first off, I want to say that, that Mark, I, I serve with him. He's a colleague of mine in the Senate. Jamie, I was a, a supporter of hers when she ran for Congressional District 2 against Greg Walden. I did a pitch for her, a uh, fundraising pitch for her at one of her larger events in Portland. So both of them are colleagues. Both of them are wonderful. And if I don't come out of this primary on May 19th, Either of them will have my absolute and full support to face Kim Thatcher on the ballot in November. So I want to be very clear about that. This is a Democratic primary where we are talking about differences in backgrounds, differences in nuances of policies, differences in experience. But we're not talking about differences in values. And I will support any of them with my whole heart against Kim Thatcher in November. So I want to be super clear about that. Um, you mentioned, you know, Mark having governing experience. I think it's important when you look back in Oregon's history that all of the big stuff – 
that has been done, vote by mail in the 90s, you know, automatic voter registration, um, you know, pa- uh, the postmarking, the ballot, uh, the, the prepaid postage. All of those have done, been done and pushed by secretaries of state who had legislative experience. I think it's a really hard job to have executive experience for a statewide office in Oregon, and yet you don't have the legislative experience to know how to work a bill, how to work a policy through the House and the Senate. Uh, Like Mark, I have served in both the House and the Senate, and I have that legislative experience and have had the ability to work on some very big policy initiatives, both we talked earlier about automatic voter registration and things also unrelated to the Secretary of State's office, uh, like uh, the statewide rent stabilization bill. Uh, we also had, you know, national popular vote is something that, you know, for many, many years got a vote in the House and then would come over to the Senate and never even get a vote. I was one of the members of the Senate in 2019 that pushed hard to just get a vote on the Senate floor. And we passed that with some Republican support with the three most powerful Democrats in the Senate, Peter Courtney, Jenny Burdick, and Betsy Johnson, all voting no. And so I think that, you know, it is important to have legislative experience in Oregon to know how to actually move big ideas forward. Because if, you, if you're an executive in Oregon without that legislative experience, you're essentially, you know, you can only enforce the laws that others create for you, but you don't have that experience to go make big policy changes. So I do share that with. So that's your differentiation with Jamie. That, that's your differentiation from Jamie McLeod Skinner and why you think you're better than Mark. Well, I mean, the reality is Senator Hass and I serve together, but we do have a different voting record and I'm proud in this race, I mean, the very folks that are, you know, the question is who trusts who based on our record? Because Mark and I aren't just coming and saying we have similar ideas. We both are big supporters of, of exploring ranked choice voting. That's something that I've been very excited about for a number of, um, you know, a, a, for a, a time. And so he's pushing that. We're both sharing that policy. I think there are some policies that I'm pushing that Mark has not. Like we talked about closing that secret record, that public, uh, that secret ballot loophole in our public records law. But the reality is Mark and I both have a record. And yet when you look at the folks right now in this COVID-19 crisis, who's saving us right now? Who's on the front lines? Our healthcare workers, our janitors, our food service workers, our public service workers out there. They're all supporting me in this race because I have a record of having stood with them. Even when it was against standing with Democratic leadership, I didn't just go along with my party. I stood with everyday Oregonians who were now basically the heroes that are wearing cleaning crews and scrubs and masks and all the things that we need the people out there in those public spaces to be doing to keep us safe in this pandemic, all those folks are supporting me in this race. And I think that's a key distinction because Mark and I have a public, you know, public voting record. Everybody can see what our public voting record is. And the folks that are, you know, the most at risk and they're out there doing the everyday work in Oregon are all supporting me in this race. I think that's just a really key difference uh, between Senator Haas and myself in terms of the, the public voting record that we do have. I was watching David Bluff. I think that's the guy's name. He was campaign manager for Barack Obama. And he was commenting on the presidential primary. And he was saying, listen, the presidential primary is now over. It, it, it's not officially over, but Joe Biden needs to treat this race as a general election. He needs to start running against Donald Trump. He needs to marshal the coalition to defeat Donald Trump because there is no time to waste. He says, you know, in a campaign, he offered an old saw in a campaign. The one thing you never have enough of is time. 
time. Talk about the dynamic of the time pressure that you have getting in the race after Jennifer Williamson drops out, the time to try to gather those endorsements, to raise that money, to let people know who the heck you are. Heck, just to film the ads and air the ads and now doing all of those things, I don't know, by Zoom and Google Doc. How is the time? How are you dealing with that time challenge? You make an interesting point because I did, you know, I've been working on these issues, of course, for the past decade, but I did file for the election for this race a little bit later than Jamie and Mark. And yet now that we're in this new reality, we're actually now ahead of our other opponents in terms of how we expected to run this campaign. And I always expected to run a very digital campaign while getting out and meeting people in person was absolutely something we hoped to do barnstorming all 36 counties in Oregon. We had planned a big, actually for starting this coming Monday, I have my kids on spring break this year. We were going to go barnstorm Oregon in the RV that was already planned. We were already making a big itinerary. That, of course, has been canceled because of the, the pandemic. But we were already planning to run an incredibly digital campaign because I've done that as a legislator. The reality is, even if folks, you know, even if 50 folks can come out and meet you at a town hall. That might be in a town of 600 people, or that might be in a county of several tens of thousands of people. So we always had to find ways to reach people where they are. I was one of the first legislators um, when I first started that would do ta- that would do um, town halls. We would call them digital town halls. And I remember one of the first responses I got back from that, where we would just use platforms to basically have these digital town halls. And I remember a woman commenting and saying, I never get to go to these things. Because I have young kids and we're, you know, we're out doing stuff. It's just I am watching my daughter's volleyball game and I'm tuning in to, you know, that that particular episode I was with the Ways and Means Chair describing the education budget. So you can never get to participate in these things. And now I get to. Thank you. So, you know, as you know, we launched I launched a podcast last year with a colleague from Southern Oregon, Jeff Golden, called Capitalizing. We would we would bring that information to voters every week. Basic stuff we were doing in the Capitol. I'm kind of famous for doing these silly Facebook live videos while I drive to Salem, of course, with a hands-free, uh, my phone, you know, stuck on a hands-free device, just explaining the basic legislative process, saying, hey, folks, here's the work session deadline. Here's what that means and breaking it down for people. So we were already planning to do that in this campaign. So we were already essentially building those platforms that now are going to be the only way that we reach voters are things like teletown halls and webinars. We've already started doing videos and interviews with people that are they have good information for people for different angles during the COVID-19 crisis. We had a divorce lawyer on the other day talking about folks who are divorced and co-parenting during this. And what does that mean? And what are the tips? We have a mental health therapist coming on later. We have Teresa Alonzo Leon, representative from Woodburn area, who's going to talk about resources for undocumented families. And so we were already planning to do that. In fact, long before we knew the way that COVID-19 was going to change our campaign. We had already begun to launch a campaign podcast, which we now, of course, are doing. It's called On the Oregon Trail with Shamia. Folks can download it today. My first episode, I actually Good plug. with my two older brothers. Uh, one's a diesel mechanic in, in Hermiston, and one is a sheet metal welder. And then my seven-and-a-half-year-old son, and we essentially answer the question, I, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, Jefferson, you know, I'm excited you're running, but I'm embarrassed to ask, what does the Secretary of State even do? It's a fair question. question head on with my two brothers who my brother was like, I was like, what do you guys think the Secretary of State does? And one of my brothers was like, I don't know, answer phones and get coffee and stuff. (laughs) The Secretary. Right. So we walked through that and we were already planning to do a podcast. So you're a little bit ahead because you're already doing digital stuff. That's interesting. Exactly. So we're really, really, really. So we're essentially we got into the race a little bit later than my opponent's. 
but we're actually now ahead because we were already planning to run super engaging digital content. How do you measure the ahead? Like some of it, you just sort of, well, we're technologically ready and emotionally ready. Are you counting that? Any polls in the race, uh, fundraising in the race? What way endorsements in the race that help us understand the positioning at this point? I think the endorsements are going to be key in this race, Jefferson. The reality is it's hard to break into the media environment right now. Folks are not thinking. I mean, it's already hard in a Secretary of State's race. I mean, I think a good example, you talked about the City Club debate with uh, with uh, Mike Schmidt and Ethan Knight, I believe his name is. You know, we had a Secretary of State's debate with City Club uh, right before everything shut down. So we were in person and there was maybe 50 people in the room. And I would venture to guess 37 of them had already decided on their candidate. Right. And this yeah. is the Secretary of State and maybe 50 people show up to a debate. This is not an, a race that people automatically are that interested in. We have to make it relevant to their lives. But I think this is going to be a race where endorsements are key because a lot of folks are going to get that voters pamphlet. And it's the first time they've thought about it. heard of any of us. Yeah. And they're going to look through those endorsements and they're going to see that I've been endorsed by NARAL and Planned Parenthood and Pacoon, the Latinx Farm Workers and Working Families Union, uh, SEIU, AFSME, the firefighters, the teachers. And so they're going to look at those endorsements and go, okay. These are the folks that I tend to trust as a Democrat. I think those endorsements are going to be really key, especially since those are the folks out on the front lines literally fighting this pandemic right here in Oregon. And I think that they have a bolstered credibility right now of why the person that they trust. Yeah, you th- so you think endorsements, voters trust. you think endorsements are going to matter more in this election? Yeah, the, that city club debate, I think that was what, like the night before everything shut down. Yes. So, to, you yes. know, to be fair, a lot of people were maybe anticipating something happening. They were watching the news. But I, we're all living through and seeing this dynamic. Do you think it helps incumbents? You made the argument it helps endorsements. Uh, it makes endorsements more important. It may make, I don't know, TV ads more important. Do you think it helps incumbents? That could include Donald Trump. That could include Mayor Ted Wheeler. Uh, yeah, tell us about that dynamic. Is it harder for a new candidate to break through in this kind of media context? I think if the incumbents are doing a good job, I think, I mean, obviously I'm no fan of Donald Trump. Uh, that's, that's something that's very clear by anybody who spent any amount of time with me, and, and he's not doing a good job. He's not able to respond to basic questions like, what do you say to people who are afraid? And so I think if the incumbents are doing a good job, and this is a time for them to showcase their leadership skills, if they're not, it's everybody seeing on display how terrible their leadership skills are. And so in this race, there will be no incumbent in the Secretary of State right. race. It's an open Democratic primary. Secretary of State Bev Clarno is not running for re-election, so there'll be an open. There is technically a primary on the Republican side. Senator Kim Thatcher uh, drew an opponent, on, I believe, on filing day. But I think the expectation is that, that Kim Thatcher will be the one that gets through the race. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that it's, it's an open primary where folks are going to have to look to other metrics of whether these people have led in, you know, in tough times or how they have addressed other crises like our housing crisis or other types of crisis of faith that we've we've endured in government. And I think it's going to be a, a real gut check type election of who do I trust? And that's where, you know, we're going to be going back to a lot of, I mean, the Maya Angelou quote, I think is going to be really key in this election, which is folks don't often remember what you say, but they will remember how you made them feel. And I think that what we're going to be doing a lot of in this election is, yes, telling folks about what the Secretary of State does. And, and given that I'm home with my kids, a uh, seven-year-old and a three-year-old, a lot of the days, I'm going to be using them to kind of act out different things because I have to obviously engage with them as I'm essentially homeschooling them for the foreseeable future. So we're going to be doing a lot of things in fun, engaging ways. But I think in the end, Oregonians who don't maybe aren't going to know a ton about all the candidates because of what's going on, they're going to hit that, okay, who do I trust? And yeah, who makes me feel safe, maybe. A lot about my story with them. 
And, and that feeling, some of the best analysis I have heard overlaps with the quote of a friend of mine that I've used before, but I'll use again. We were talking about the Democratic presidential primary, and you know, I was expounding on the brilliance of Elizabeth Warren, and he said, Jeff, yeah, Warren would be great. We can't mess around with that stuff this time. And and he ended up predicting a lot of, you know, he's a dear friend of mine, helps run the numbers in his, uh, I don't mean the gambling game, I mean the uh, black radio station. And his line predicted a lot of black voting results in the South and throughout the country. And a lot of people voting based on, listen, we've got to vote for somebody that we kind of know, we kind of trust, a name we know, somebody we think is going to win. Voting not on based on adventure, not on even in frontal lobes, but bo- voting to some degree based on risk assessment and fear, at least has been some of the sort of pointy-headed analysis. And I hear that overlaps a little bit with what you're saying. Who did you like in the, in the, in the primary? You endorsed Elizabeth Warren, yeah? I, I did endorse Elizabeth Warren, yeah. And uh, I mean, obviously, at this point, mathematically, it, you know, Joe Biden is unless something dramatic changes. And I mean, literally, I don't mean that to be um, flip. I mean, we have he and Bernie Sanders. We have two septuagenarians who are, you know, who were out meeting people and shaking hands back when this disease was filtering through uh, the U.S. We just didn't know it as well as we know it today. And so I'm, I mean that in terms of just being realistic about of the possibility of, of something happening, but it certainly looks mathematically. I mean, I follow Nate Silver in 538 quite a bit, and they give Joe Biden a 99 out of 100 percent chance of being the nominee yeah. or at least having the majority of delegates. And so I certainly am hopeful that he'll pick a vice president that can get a lot of us who Joe Biden was not our first choice, um, who can get us excited. But I think it's interesting that, you know, to, t- to take what you said back to the secretary of state's race, I think, you know, again, to make a pitch for my candidacy is I think that folks get in me, they get a lot of what they like. They get some bold solutions that other people are not putting forward. Uh, things like closing that secret ballot loophole, um, ranked choice voting. And again, I want to give Mark Hass credit that he's also putting that forward. Again, he's a friend. I don't want to just, you know, disparage or be unfair to him. We both talked a lot about ranked choice voting. Um, but also, you know, I am, so I'm somebody with bold solutions, but I'm also somebody who's unlike anybody else in my, in this race has shown I can win in difficult races. As you know, Jefferson, I ran, um, aside from my school board race, I ran for the first time in 2012 against an incumbent Republican in a swing district. And I won two months after having my first baby, my son. And I won a a district that was leaning about four and a half points Democratic. The next cycle in 2014, I won that same seat against a well-funded Republican opponent when it was leaning about six points Democratic. And Jefferson statewide, Oregon leads about nine points Democratic. So I have twice won swing districts in Oregon that included rural areas like Boring and Damascus, suburban areas and urban areas. I have won two of those races that are more competitive than Oregon is statewide. And, you know, I'm the only candidate in this race who is that safe choice in that sense of somebody that we can be confident will go in November and beat Kim Thatcher. Are you the front runner in this race? And let me give some context. By the way, I'm talking to and you're listening to Shamia Fagan, candidate for secretary of state, the second highest constitutional office in Oregon, runs the state elections, runs the corporations division, public records, runs the audit function, runs the civic engagement office, and is our lieutenant governor, is the person that if the governor goes down, the secretary of state becomes the governor. Heck, that's how our current governor became the governor. Shamia, going in, when you entered, I suspect that you had in your mind maybe the front runner status among a lot of kind of liberal interest groups uh, from Planned Parenthood. You named a couple of them, right? Maybe public labor. I don't know if they've endorsed yet. 
the uh, the argument that Jamie McLeod Skinner would offer is, yeah, you know, I ran a race in a district with one fifth of the population of the state. These folks have won and run and won races in state Senate districts with one thirtieth of the Oregon population. Do you view yourself as the front runner? And what are the dynamics of how you win the race with respect to that? I've never lost an election. And the reason I've never lost an election is I always run as if I'm the underdog. So I haven't seen, you know, I'm a data person. I would need to see polling to see if there is a front runner in this race. My assumption at this point is nobody knows who any of us are when you poll Democratic voters statewide. They are yeah. focused on, you know, keeping their kids home from school, you know, caring for an elderly parent, paying their rent, losing their job, way to pay for food, you know, saving others' lives, out cleaning public spaces. So I would venture to guess that from a data standpoint, Jefferson, I bet nobody, you know, in Oregon, I bet none of us have much of a blip in terms of people knowing who we are paying attention to this race. So I have won a I've won uh, five four races in Oregon. Three of them have been against incumbents. Uh, one of them was when it, if somebody ran against me as an incumbent. And so and I've always won because I never run in any other way than being an underdog. I always go into debates not prepared but over prepared to make sure that you know, that I don't take things for granted. When you grow up like I did, Jefferson, uh, out in Eastern Oregon, single dad, you know, mom battling addiction and homelessness, I, I approach life as an underdog. <laughs> so um, I don't know who the, I don't, I don't think there's probably a front runner in this race, but I certainly am committed, you know, and the public employee unions have endorsed in this race. They did it right before the endorsement deadline. And I want to make one um, statement about endorsements is that I have received a lot of endorsements since getting into this race, but I made one thing clear to all of the organizations that I was seeking the endorsement from, and I said I won't accept any endorsements that didn't give everybody an opportunity, every Democrat an opportunity to interview. I didn't want any you know, processes by which somebody gave me an endorsement without interviewing other people, without giving other people a chance. And so all of the endorsements that I've received from NARAL and Planned Parenthood, the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, PACUN, the Latinx Farm Workers Union, SEIU, AFSCME, uh, AFL-CIO, the Firefighters, the American Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals, uh, the Oregon Education Association, and so on. They interviewed Good everybody, plug. and they gave everybody a chance to compete. And so I won those from the grassroots folks in those those working folks voting in a democratic process to endorse as opposed to any kind of, you know, one person making a decision. Let's talk about process changes before we have to wrap. You will be, if you win, the chief elections officer. You've worked on some process stuff before. What are some of the other bold things? I want to start with campaign finance reform before voters is going to be for the first time. Uh, well, actually, no, for the second time, at least a chance to clarify the Constitution to allow limits to campaign uh, contributions. I think that's going to be the easy part. I'm not calling it easy. But relatively speaking, I think it's the easy part. The harder part is actually coming up with a statute that is, in fact, a good government statute that, in fact, can pass either in the legislature or before the voters. Do you think you could pass a bill before the legislature that would, in fact, potentially disrupt legislative power and lobbyist power? Or do you think you got to go straight to the voters? I certainly hope that we can. And as secretary of state, I will make sure that we are. That we're primarily involved in that in that campaign finance reform conversation. As you mentioned, you know, thank you for putting in a plug for the November constitutional amendment. We need to make sure that passes to authorize the legislature to make changes. My concern about the conversation so far in campaign finance reform, and you and I have even had discussions about this, and we haven't always agreed, is number one that how is that possible? You know, corporate interests and others who have been rigging the system for decades see this on the horizon, and so they want to say, well, wait a second, if I can't give, uh, you know a hundred thousand dollar check from my checkbook 
then a labor organization or a grassroots organization should not be able to give a check that big. And I don't think that anybody's $17 a month or $27 a month or $33 a month contribution ever becomes big money just because they successfully organize people. I think the biggest example of that is Bernie Sanders has run a pack, you know, where it's basically run by folks given the average of $27. Nobody that gives to Bernie Sanders suddenly becomes big money just because he's been super successful in grassroots, in grassroots fundraising. And so that's one concern I have is, is the wanting, people wanting to equate one person giving a hundred thousand dollars to a hundred thousand people getting giving one. Well, let's tug on that for a moment. That's really that's a power. That's a really important thing. Maybe the most important thing to grapple with when it comes to the statute. Uh, and you're right that I think that you know Wells Fargo check is vastly different than a whole bunch of Bernie Sanders checks. And both of those things, I would also say, are different from a League of Conservation Voters or a, uh, uh, an SEIU check. And here's why I would say the Bernie Sanders or you respond to this. There's potentially an argument, at least, that the Bernie Sanders' big pocket of money is different from an interest group big pocket of money. The difference being everybody's giving directly to Bernie and hoping that he will look at an array of issues and balance those things. For the lobbyist who has the chance to hand over a six-figure check, maybe they're not the lobbyists for Phil Knight, but for the lobbyist for the organization that is able to hand over that six-figure check, they aren't necessarily balancing all of the stuff, and that lobbyist can have that kind of power over that politician. Respond to that and say why that's hogwash. Well, the concern that folks have with campaign finance reform is exactly what you said. Who has power? And the reason that I'm happy and proud to be endorsed by labor organizations in this race is when you ask who has power. Again, when you when you go before SEIU, for example, and you seek their endorsement, you're not going before one person with power. I mean, I sit in front of a room of 80 people that are, you know, sanitation workers and security guards and frontline healthcare workers and social workers and childcare workers, they're the ones getting to make that decision. And so if the question is, who do we want to have power? I don't know why I wouldn't want folks like that to be the ones who have power over leaders in Oregon, folks doing the everyday work. And I, and I, I don't agree. I don't think that that labor leaders, for example, are not looking at an array of issues. I mean, one of the big issues for SEIU in the 2018 and 2017 sessions was housing reform, was making sure that their members and all people across the state were able to afford their rent. And that's an issue totally separate from bargaining rights and and retirement security and things like that. And so I think that there are an array of issues. And just because folks successfully organize, whether it's, again, if there's right-wing groups that also successfully organize grassroots, Oregon Right to Life, um, the Oregon Firearms Federation. I'm not saying I agree with those folks, but you know, there are grassroots organizations all over that are raising small contributions. And just because they're successful in inspiring people to give, I don't believe they should then be punished by saying, oh, well, you know, we don't want those people to have power. I mean, you look at who's fighting this crisis for us all across the state, and there are folks that are like, well, why shouldn't they have power in their legislature, particularly if they band together to fight for things that benefit the whole state, like paid sick leave and paid family leave and, and gun violence prevention? A quote, I'll, I'll amplify some of what you said, and then I want to also ask another question about it. The, I, I'll not quote, but paraphrase Robert Reich, who said uh, uh, roughly, yeah, that organized labor is an imperfect fighter for the middle class, but it's the, really the only strong fighter in their corner. 
And to say, and to go further than that, the attacks, we very clear, I mean, the attacks on public labor are similar to the attacks against George Soros, which is basically big propaganda trying to undercut the funding channels for, you know, Democratic and progressive and liberal candidates. So let me just concede those real quick. There is also an argument that any interest group given too much power can overreach. Anybody who's advocating for their own members, advocating for the financial, very legitimate financial interests of their own members can overreach. Is there any concern you have that with the very legitimate hard-earned, and in that respect, certainly deserved power that the your endorsing organizations have built, particularly with strong Democratic majorities in the legislature. And yeah, we're talking the well, Teachers I, Union and SEA yeah. and AFSCME. Is there and any concern you have of overreach? Right. And I can't speak for labor across the country. What I can speak to is my Oregon. experience of labor here in Oregon. And I don't know that I've seen them ever just advocate for their members. When they were looking at paid sick leave, they weren't just trying to get those in SEIU or contracts. They're trying to get those for every worker, whether you're a gas station worker in Malheur County or a, you know, restaurant employee down in Klamath Falls or whether you're working at a, you know, a Denny's in downtown Portland. They were trying to get that for everybody. When they tried to raise the minimum wage, they were fighting that for everybody. When we look at, you know, they've also gotten into areas like criminal justice reform and making sure, you know, banning the box for employment applications for folks who have a felony, who have done their time, who want to go out and be productive members of society. So I haven't seen labor in Oregon. Again, I can't speak to labor. No, they, clearly, clearly. They've look, advocated for entire, the entire state of Oregon, not just their own members. And that's what gives me trust in them. And it may be different in other states, and it may be No, let's talk about Oregon. It, in history. And no question that, and, I mean, you're talking about 100,000, give or take, members, depending on the union. Their members have a lot of concerns that map to concerns of other people in the state as well, to amplify that point. But, all, but let me still ask that question. Is there ever a concern that a conglomerated power, wherever it lies, overreaches? And are you concerned at all that there are liberal interest groups, interest groups that have been our allies, right, to be clear, and without which we wouldn't have a chance to pass any number of things we'd want, to be very, very clear? Is there any concern that anybody should have about overreach, or is that just right-wing talking hoo-ha? Well, I think there should always be concerns. The question is, have those concerns come to fruition? And what's your been your experience with those organizations? Yeah. I think that there's always concern with any humanity, like whenever humanity is involved, there always has to be concern. I think that one um, place that campaign finance reform, not dissimilar to what you're talking about, has to address is the caucus power structure. So that's where I'm the most concerned about a legislatively approved um, the campaign finance reform as opposed to a as opposed to a voter approved is if the caucuses where I see a lot of power being being consolidated in the legislature, which is, I think, why a lot of folks, when the caucus wants to go against public labor or the caucus wants to, um, you know, again, caucus being kind of the leadership of each party, when they want to do something that actually goes against our democratic values or pass a really watered down, weak, almost do nothing version of a or a, of a progressive priority. I think that climate change or climate action is a good example of this. Even the, the bill that the Republicans walked out over in the February session, Senate Bill 1530, I would have supported it, but it was barely enough to get me excited about because it was so watered down. And so when you have this concentration of power in this caucus structure, they're the ones giving out these enormous checks to get these people elected. There's been that loyalty to the, to the caucus and not to the actual working people out in Oregon who gave the caucus that money to then give to those candidates. I think the caucus structure itself is a little bit concerning. And, and some of the legislation that I saw put forward when we were considering doing both a constitutional amendment and a legislative bill was still keeping that concentrated power in the caucus. And I've seen that 
be a major concern. And I think that a lot of progressive organizations across the state and people, everyday people who give 20 bucks a month to Planned Parenthood or 10 bucks a month to the Oregon League of Conservation Voters, see that concern where ultimately it's the caucus power structure that has a lot of that power as opposed to you know, the folks that are out running these grassroots organizations to get these candidates elected. And this gets back to your structure is a place where you see a lot of that conglomeration of power that does concern me. And this gets back to your secret ballot thing of wanting to change public records law so that if you're going to stand up and vote against something, if you're going to walk out, if you're going to block a bill that you might otherwise support, that at least that's on the record if you've put it on some record. And that's how we started this. We're talking to Shamia Fagan, who is candidate for secretary of state, current state senator. What is, any differences between you and the other candidates on uh, on process reforms? We talked about campaign finance reform a little bit. The uh, what about something like ranked choice or even star voting? The process of not just saying I would approve of all these candidates or I would just rank all of these candidates, but a little bit of a simple combination of those things. Or, oh, that's a five star candidate. That's a nine star candidate. That's a one star candidate. And then you add up the stars. How do you feel about voting processes? What's the crazy thing? Craziest thing you'd be in favor of? Well, the, the cra- I mean, I don't know that voting is something where I want to be in favor of crazy things. What I want to be in favor of is things that provide for free and fair elections that are the most accessible to everybody. So while I've heard of star voting, it makes me nervous to pilot some brand new thing when there's already ranked choice voting. And I know that there's some algorithm differences that point, folks can vote to point to and say, oh, star voting and ranked choice voting would provide a different result in these narrow situations. But the reality is ranked choice voting has actually been done for century, like a century, I think, in other countries. It's been done in other states. Maine is all ranked choice voting. We have Benton County here in Oregon that's going to pilot ranked choice voting for just their county commission races this fall. So I would certainly lean more towards ranked choice voting because, again, voting isn't something I think we want to get crazy and risky with. It is something that we need to be confident when we implement something that it not only provides for free and fair elections, but that it doesn't further exacerbate the gap between high-information voters and low-information voters. Jefferson, I know you and I have done a lot of canvassing in our days, out out knocking on votes or knocking on doors for for voting, which will be, of course, very different this time around. But one thing that has always struck me is those conversations during what we here in Oregon call the final five, right? So in Oregon, we have ballots that go out about three weeks before Election Day, but the truth is most Oregonians turn their ballot in in those last five days, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, Monday before and Tuesday before Election Day, those five, those last kind of weekend. And so we call it final five. And we're out. That's when we're out basically expanding our universe to talk to everybody that we think is in our persuadable universe that hasn't turned in the ballot yet. And our GOTV message, which stands for get out the vote, our GOTV message is very simple, which is, do you know where your ballot is? Do you have a blue or black pen at home? When do you plan on filling it out? When, where do you plan on turning it out? Are you going to turn it in or are you going to mail it, off, mail it in or drop it off? Right. Very simple. And I know that there are voters out there that I've gone with my shiny lit on that last day. And they said, oh, great, you seem exciting. And then they'll grab my lit, Jefferson, and they'll say, where do I mark on here? They'll think that's the ballot. And so I think that one concern I have with any ex, you know, expansion of different types of voting, and I do, again, think ranked choice voting is very promising and I'm very excited about piloting here in Oregon, is that it always comes and accompanies with massive education campaigns so that we don't further exacerbate that gap between lower information voters who have, again, in our fair, free and fair elections, have just as much of a right to vote and their vote counts just as much and their voice counts just as much as a political science major who's been following every single candidate's website policy position in every debate. And so we need to make sure we don't exacerbate that gap 
by any new change in voting also coming with a massive education campaign and those GOTV messages. Where we it's an interesting argument. Behind. It's an interesting argument. And and I think that advocates for star voting would say, yeah, for people who haven't done ranked choice voting, it's not any easier than, or hard. It's not it's not going to be any easier because they haven't tried that already. And their argument would be figuring out, oh, what's the difference between my third, my fourth and my fifth? That's not as easy to say, oh, I kind of like this person. I really like this person. I don't like this person very much, but appreciate your argument that, yeah, OK, but maybe we don't pilot that statewide. Maybe we start that in another place. What's something I should have asked you that I didn't? Or what's a way you want to close this out? Well, Jefferson, one thing that we're doing in this campaign, I think that one brand I've tried to, which is just very natural to me, is, is authenticity. I'm a big Brene Brown fan, and she talks about leading with your ordinariness. And one thing that we're trying to do on this campaign, which is a little bit harder now that we're all stuck in our homes, but we're still going to do it, is I think there are too many people that you know only ever see candidates in our final polished form. We only ever see the, the Tacamera video that we did, even though we know we went through it 15 times, we only ever see the final product. So we're trying to, to kind of pull back the curtains a little bit and lead with some authenticity and ordinariness. And one good example of that, Jefferson, is before the Oregon Education Association Convention, which was probably one of the most nerve-wracking speeches I've ever given. It was high stakes. You know, you're 300 educators in a room. You give this big speech. Then you answer open mic Q&A for 10 minutes. And then they vote. It's this very, very open, transparent, democratic process of educators. And it was scary. It's a nerve-wracking process. No, the OEA process is one of the most interesting processes in the state. It's wonderful, and it's transparent, and it's open. I was very proud to have them vote. I won in a four with four candidates as their options. I won 58% of the vote from Oregon educators, uh, and I'm very proud of that. But, yes, I went out, and I delivered a great speech. But what we want voters to see is that an hour before that speech, I was up in my hotel room, and I was so nervous that I was almost going to throw up. I was so nauseous, and I was shaking. And I texted my campaign manager, and I said, I am up here. I'm so nervous. I'm shaking. Please bring a camera up here. And she did. And we just filmed a conversation with me talking to her about how nervous I was because I don't want people to think they could never run for office because, oh, my God, I would be so nervous. I think you are a great example, Jefferson, of somebody who's an extraordinary public speaker. I remember when you opened for President Obama in 08 when he came here and you told the butter story, right? But I'm venturing to guess that felt like a big moment for you, and I'm willing to— Nervous as hell. Nervous as hell. Nervous as hell. But people don't see that, and so we're going to focus on— you know, giving folks more of a behind the scenes that I want. We're, we're shooting for three wins here this year, Jefferson. One is a win in May. One is a win in November. And the third win is for when our campaign is done, for there to be tens of thousands of folks from underrepresented communities across the state who watch our campaign and watch my mistakes and watch us being honest about being nervous and go, you know what? That doesn't look so hard. I could try that, too. And that's a third win that we're looking for in this campaign. In fact, I'll give you if you the, the video still exists, I think, and you can see the video. But when I my opening words, I said something like welcome to you or something. Like that, and I and then I paused. And I said, there's a lot of you. What I actually meant was, what the hell am I doing up here? What's going to happen next? Right. <laughs> I totally, right. totally pick it up what you're putting down. Shumia yeah, Fagan. But, people, but when people are good at this, they don't people don't realize that we get nervous, too. Yeah, we just then go out and do it. And so I would not want folks to not give their skills and share their experience and their lived experience here in Oregon in public service because they don't think that you and I get nervous. We do. I was so sick I was going to throw up before the OEA speech. Well, I will, and I will just say, one of the best communicators in Oregon politics, Shamia Fagan, bringing that to the Secretary of State's office in a race with three strong candidates, the other, Jamie McLeod Skinner and Mark Hass, both of whom we've had a chance to talk to. I hope we'll have a chance to talk again with you, Shamia. Thank you so much for spending this time. You got it, Jefferson. Thanks. Stay safe.
You've been listening to Shamia Fagan, part of our series, the 2020 Vision Series that we're doing here on X-Ray, trying to give folks, including folks who aren't going to have a chance to go in person to all the city club debates, for candidates who aren't going to be able to knock on their doors or have as many town hall meetings, to make sure that you have a chance to have the information you need to share with your neighbors. And you can, of course, share these interviews with folks so that we can have the discussion the democracy needs even in, maybe especially in, the context of a global crisis. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Jeff, and radio's yours.